May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. Of all of the parables of Jesus, the one we've just heard read aloud is probably the one that puzzles us the most. By us, I don't mean just us here, who've heard how the master commended the dishonest manager, to say nothing of hearing Jesus tell his disciples that they should make friends for themselves by means of dishonest wealth. The us who are puzzled begins with the disciples who first heard the story told, extends through every preacher, Bible study leader, commentator, theologian, and ordinary everyday Christian who's ever attempted to deal with it. Now in the lectionary cycle of readings, the three-year cycle, the passage comes up every three years. I've been ordained 26 years. So this is something like the ninth time I've faced this parable as a preacher. Yet every time it comes up, I find myself pressed by it. Over the years, I've looked at any number of commentaries, and I'd say that the one thing that they all agree on is that this is the hardest, the most awkward and counterintuitive of all of Jesus' parables. As my friend and colleague James Snyder observed, people who spend their entire lives studying and contributing to our understanding of this parable are all over the map. And because it appeared in the lectionary today, there have been 10,000 preachers who have probably been all over the map. It's funny that this parable of the dishonest manager is placed where it is in Luke's narrative. The previous chapter had offered three much easier, though in some respects no less audacious, parables. The parables of the lost sheep and the lost coin, which we had last Sunday, and the parable of the prodigal son, a parable that actually might be better called the parable of the lost sons as it really has in view the lostness of both the young prodigal and of that self-righteous older brother. That's very much what's in view. Now those three parables are great for the preacher. They speak with such power of the graciousness of God, who will turn the house upside down and go to the ends of the earth in order to bring the lost ones home. I mean, who can't preach those? We like that. Or at least we like that theme once we've figured out that all of us are numbered amongst the lost. Well, I think that this parable of the dishonest steward actually requires the same sort of figuring that we are among the lost, all of us. I think, in other words, that it's no less a parable of grace than are those three easier ones that preceded. And that it requires the very same willingness to confess our lostness in order for it to even begin to have resonance. It also requires that we shelve any sense that the parables of Jesus are moral tales.
after the manner of Aesop's fables. In the tradition of Aesop, the lost sheep would have remained lost because it was foolish enough to get itself lost. Or maybe it would have run across a colony of hard-working ants who would have shown it the way home. The prodigal son would have been assigned as a perpetual servant to the hard-working, righteous older brother who stayed home and behaved. And this dishonest steward in tonight's parable would have faced his comeuppance and been tossed out into the streets. That's what might have happened if Esau were telling it as one of his moral fables. Jesus, however, seems disinterested in telling us that sort of moral story. In fact, here Jesus is prepared to use a rather shady character as his hero, just as he's willing to use a crooked judge as a stand-in for God in one parable, a reprobate tax collector as a model of faith in another, and a pain-in-the-neck friend as an image for faithful and persistent prayer in a third, Jesus is apparently unafraid to deal in anti-heroes and undesirables. Now sometimes you'll hear people say that, well, they don't believe that Jesus was a son of God or a divine figure. They do recognize that he was a great moral teacher. Yet Jesus doesn't offer any coherent system of universally applicable moral and ethical teachings. He just doesn't. Not anything that can be separated or abstracted off from who he is. Ultimately, even the stories and teachings that do seem to have a wider application. For instance, to say, no slave can serve two masters. For a slave will hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to one and despise the other, even those kind of reasonable teachings can't be heard apart from claims about who he is. But the church, well, the church, says Jim Snyder, has spent 20 centuries trying to mold Jesus into our image of moral respectability. Yet all it takes is a parable like this one to blow that all apart. You see, unlike the prodigal son who had squandered his property, and it's the same word in this parable, by the way, the dishonest manager is said to have been squandering his master's property. Here, unlike the prodigal, the, the hero actually never repents. The dishonest hero remains a bit of a shyster. In fact, he acts as a way that Jesus characterizes as shrewd in dealing with dishonest wealth. Having played fast and loose with the accounts and assets that uh, have been entrusted to him by his wealthy boss, and now facing dismissal, and having no clue what line of work he's going to move into because he says, I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm way too proud to beg. He decides to go for broke. He's got a few minutes left, a little bit of time left, and so he summons all of the people who still had outstanding balances owing to the boss. And he starts lopping 
those outstanding balances down. How much do you owe? I owe a hundred jugs of oil. A hundred jugs of oil? Settle it now. We'll call it even at 50, okay? Absolutely. And how much do you owe? A hundred bushels of wheat. Make it 80. And we can settle it right now. All right. He's fixing the books. That's what he's doing. The business owner could have had him arrested for what he's doing with those debts, with those balances. And yet, Jesus says, his master commended the dishonest manager because he'd acted shrewdly. That's when we know that we're dealing with a parable and not a moral fable. He commended the dishonest manager to which Jesus adds, For the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. Okay, Lord, now you're piling one complication on top of another. Aren't we supposed to be children of light? I mean, we're called to be in the world, certainly, but not of the world. Isn't, isn't our calling to be children of light? All of those other teachings, isn't that us? And then one more layer gets added. I tell you, make friends for yourselves by dishonest wealth, that when it is gone, you may be welcomed into eternal homes or into homes that last. Well, that phrase, dishonest wealth, is sometimes translated as worldly wealth or even just as money. But even that only solves so much. A preacher could spend a lot of time digging around in biblical word studies and other details dealing with all of the verses that surround and follow this parable. Well, not only would that keep us here considerably longer than any of you had expected, but I'm not sure it would actually get us at the heart of what he's doing here in this parable. And I think that the heart of the matter is tied up in the fact that this dishonest, shrewd, bad actor who managed to squander the master's property and then deals with it by fixing the books is in fact this parable's Christ figure. It's a perspective not unique to me. And some of you may already be beginning to guess. But the one that I learned it from is that most audacious theologian of grace, Robert Ferrer Capon, who says, This parable says in story form what Jesus himself said by his life. He was not respectable. He broke the Sabbath. He consorted with crooks, and he died as a criminal. Again, this parable says in story form what Jesus himself said by his life. He was not respectable, he broke the Sabbath, he consorted with crooks, and he died as a criminal. Now at last, Capon continues, in light of this parable, we see why he refused to be respectable. He did it to catch a world that respectability could only terrify and condemn. He did it to catch a world that respectability could only terrify and condemn. Jesus became sin for us sinners, weak 
for us weaklings, lost for us losers, and dead for us dead. Now, you might object that if this is the parable's Christ figure, that means that the rich business owner who was initially going to toss the dishonest manager, the Christ figure, out on the streets is the God figure. And doesn't that put Christ and the Father in opposition to one another? That's bad theology, Jamie. To which I'd say, yes, that would be bad theology. But we're talking about a parable here, which is meant always to unsettle, challenge, fill us with wonder, or to do all three at once. Maybe part of the point here would be that in the end, the rich owner and his shrewd business steward managed to share a laugh as the old rules of bookkeeping are tossed out the window and everyone is enabled to have their accounts settled right then and there. Maybe that's the point. Not trying to line up the figures in too careful ways, but to celebrate this figure who joins together with the rich owner and laughs as the books go out the window and everybody's accounts are settled. That sounds to me like good, solid Christian theology. The Christian proclamation insists that in the end, grace comes only by death and by losing, not by success, by the self-emptying of God and Christ on an executioner's cross. That's the hinge on which it all turns. And when you really think about it, when you look at the accounting of our own lives, each of us, our own decisions and indecisions are all too often self-serving and self-justifying ways of being in the world. Isn't it lucky for us we don't have to deal with a just steward? I'll take the wild, unsettling parables of Jesus over Aesop's fables any day because they leave us with a deep hope. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.